John 7, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And there he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So Spirit, now as we even read of you here in this passage, take your inspired word, lift it off the page, guide us, shape us, teach us by it. Amen. So here we are continuing to see Jesus at the great feast, the feast of booths, a great celebration, a great celebration of harvest and great a celebration of provision from God. And Jesus is here with this, this multitude of people, a crowd of people, a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time. And we, we see that there is some uncertainty about Jesus very clear that there's some uncertainty and there's division about Jesus too. We've already seen some of this. There's division among the leaders. There's division among the people. Uh, there's a division among the people that have studied the scriptures and there's uh, division among people who are devout with the faith of Jerusalem. There's just a, a, lot, of, a lot of division 
here. And what the Apostle John wants us to, to see and what he's really repeating chapter after chapter is this conviction, this, this commitment that he's calling for all people to come to commitment to Jesus Christ. And so he's, some of these people are in Jerusalem and they say, is not this the man who they seek to kill? Word is out that they're wanting to kill Jesus. That's a good word. They're wanting to kill Jesus and the word circulating in the community. The most religious city in the world still is. The most religious city in the world and here the word on the street is these, these leaders, the Jews, want to kill Jesus. Well, what we see from the people is that it seems that they're very willful in their rejection or their, their claim to misunderstand Jesus. Very intentional. They have some preconceived notions, as we've seen all through the, the gospel. People come around Jesus. They have some preconceived ideas. They, they seem to be willfully wanting to just shut their eyes concerning Jesus. He's, per, he's giving all of these, these miracles. But this guy is from Galilee. Surely they would have done some sort of investigation at this point. Well, really, he was born in Bethlehem. Uh, re really, what is the lineage of his, in their mind, mother and father? Joseph and Mary? Well, they come out of the house of David. Surely, it's hard to believe that they, the, the, the crowds, the people that are coming in contact with Jesus after all the reputation that has cycled through the community to this point. And remember, in chapter 5, he'd already been in Jerusalem and he went back to Galilee. Word has spread about Jesus. There's... there's a lot being spoken of about Jesus, a lot of uncertainty, but it seems to be that these people are, are really, they're, they're willful about embracing misinformation about Jesus. Well, one of the first things that we can see about the Lord is, and God working in His life, is that nothing overrules the, the restraining hand of God. Nothing overrules the protective hand of God. Nothing is, is going to, uh, no one, or no thing is going to take the life of Jesus until God's predetermined plan is set into place. God has, uh, from all eternity past, decreed when the time was that Jesus would actually be killed and when he would go to the cross and when they would arrest him. All of that is part of God's eternal plan and we see that nothing is going to get in the way of that. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him and no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. His hour had not come, meaning the hour that God had decreed. And this can be a good, great comfort to all of us in our day-to-day -day walk, in our life of faith. That, that what we experience in our life comes into our life because God allows it to happen. The question is, what is God doing in that circumstance? And no one will take our life until God says that that life is over in uh, its earthly 
daily presence. God controls all of life. We may have sufferings, we may have pains, uh, Satan may do all kinds of trickery and, and deceit and, and bring all kinds of chaos into our life, sure enough, God allowing that to happen, but none, uh, nothing can take our life away from God. Satan can't take our life away from God. And our life and the life of Jesus and the life that He's living is according to the plan of God. God. Nothing overrules the plan of God for God's people. Well, in verse 27, these people say, but we know where this man has come from. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he's from. Well, it's hard to imagine that they hadn't heard of these religionists, the, the very devout people at this festival in Jerusalem. It, it's very hard to think that they hadn't heard of the prophecies. I already mentioned Bethlehem. I already mentioned the house of David. We know, we know who this is. And as I say, they seem to be willful in their lack of investigation. They're assuming something about Jesus. They're assuming they know this man. They don't really know him. They're assuming something about him that's not entirely true. And they're not really, it seems, willing to go into their own investigation. And that attitude circulates today. Don't you know people who claim to know something about Jesus? Well, we know, we know Him. But, <laughs> and they haven't investigated who is Jesus. What does He actually teach what does he actually command? What does he actually demand of people? And people kind of have a folk religion about Jesus, it seems. I run into that personally from time to time. You might kind of have a, a, a folk religion. Kind of picked it up at home, picked it up in the culture, picked it up in TV, a little bit in church, a little bit in a Bible study they might have been. Kind of a, 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 a picture of Jesus that well, we, we know, but we know where this man comes from. They don't seem to want to receive the truth of his teaching because what Jesus is teaching and what Jesus is commanding really is flipping their world upside down. And they're not sure if they want too much of that. So, they're refusing to catch on to Jesus. They have some assumptions about Jesus. And they're trying to, there's this idea of arresting Jesus. But even though the leaders were seeking to arrest him, no one, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not, had not come. It's really so interesting about what the picture is. Got into some of that last week. The picture in Jerusalem, but there's just a lot of a lot of fake sincerity. 
People interested in hearing what Jesus is doing. In the religion in itself, they're, they're very devout. They're putting on the picture of being very devout, but at the same time, they're willing to murder this man. They're willing to kill this man. There's this, this falseness in the, the sincerity, it, it seems. And really, what is the picture is, as we see the crowds coming to the festival, the leaders leading, the family, leading them, Jesus comes on the scene with this very powerful teaching. And they're not nearly as exalted spiritually as what they think they are or, or what they would like others to think they are. Because it comes, this teaching of Jesus, we know Him. They don't really know Him. They know Him, but they don't really know Him. So they're coming after Jesus. They're going, they want to do something to Him. Verse 31, but as many people, many people did believe in Him. It's kind of, it's not the kind of concrete faith that we'll see later in, the, in this gospel. Men, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? He says, the answer is rhetorically, the question's asked. No, the Christ can't be doing more because Jesus has done so much here. But as we see, they cannot lay a hand on Jesus, despite all of their maneuvering, despite all of their angling, despite all of their assumptions about God, who God, they can't lay a hand on him because it's not God's time yet. And as I, as I say, that could be a good comfort to us. That'd be a great comfort to us to, to know that God's watching over you, caring for you, even on the most difficult days of your life. Listen to some of these scriptures. Let me read from Proverbs chapter 19, verses 21 to 23. Many are the plans in the man of a mind, but Excuse me. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Verse 21, or chapter 21, Proverbs, verses 30, 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Psalm 91, 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in who... I trust. So we can lock in to those truths, knowing that God allows situations into our life for a purpose, but no one can take our life until it aligns and agrees with God's eternal plan. God overrules, God restrains. Wickedness. The hand of God is invincible. You believe that? Amen. 
Do you believe that God's hand overrules the current political climate? The, the, the current attitudes in media? The, the current economic condition? Do you think God overrules that and is your protector? What about the global great reset? Think God is sovereign over that? The scriptures tell us that He is. That He allows certain things. He, uh, he allows Satan to come into Job's life. He allows certain things to come for His decreed eternal purposes, but no one can take your life until God says it's time. That's a great assurance. That can be a great assurance. I hope for you it is for me during uncertain times. But at the same time, Jesus does not test His Heavenly Father. We have to remember that. Jesus doesn't just march around and say, I'm under the, the authority of my heavenly Father. I'll do whatever I want to do when, whenever I want to do and test God. We see this in the beginning of chapter 7. We won't go back to that. We've already talked about it. But his brothers say, why don't you go to Jerusalem now? Jesus says, this is not my time. No, I'm not going to go. Or the devil comes to tempt Satan in the wilderness and has some ideas about what Jesus ought to do. And Jesus says, no. Uh, I'm not going to test God. Jesus even quotes the scriptures and says, do, do not put God to the test. Twin truths here. Can you capture that? God's sovereignty, God's authority, your protection, but at the same time, not putting God to the test? It could be we live in a time when some people want to put God to the test because they're one of His. They're a Christian. So they'll put God to the test even though that's not the wisest thing to do. That's, that's a, a, against what seems to be the will of God. But we'll go ahead and do it anyway because I'm covered by God. I'll do anything I want to. I'll stand out in front of the firing line because I'm covered with, by God. Don't put God to the test. Jesus does not do that in what we see of His life. Well, uh, next thing we see is these people squandering a great opportunity that's before them. Enormous opportunity that's before them. Verse 33, well, in 32, the priests, the Pharisees, heard the crowd muttering about some of these things. In 33, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. And once again, we see sent me. We've thought about that. But that really, those words sent me, that really would light up these religious leaders 
and uh, those devout to what the religious leaders are teaching because Jesus is saying he's been sent by Yahweh. He's been sent by God and they don't see it that way. But in verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You will not be able to come, he says. You will seek me. How sad is that? The day that it comes for some to seek Jesus and he can't come to where he is. It's a squandered opportunity for these people because Jesus is right before them. He's teaching right before them. There's nothing secret. It says that he, he stood up on the last day of the feast. He stands up, cries out. He's not hiding in his teaching, but he tells them that there, there will be a day that they will seek him and they can't find him. Now, there's the physical aspect of that. Of course, he's going to go somewhere where they physically are not going to be able to go. But as is with the case with John so many times, there's this, the physical picture that carries the spiritual meaning. And so it's an opportunity that's been, been squandered. It's a reminder for us, for people all over our community and in our families, in our nation, and people everywhere to not squander the opportunity of coming to Jesus, coming to the biblical Jesus, not coming to the folk religion, coming to the biblical Jesus. What is the picture of this Jesus? Committing to this Jesus. There's an opportunity. You have that opportunity today to come to Jesus, but we can squander that opportunity through indifference. We can, we can squander the opportunity by having different priorities. We can squander the opportunity to come and to cast ourselves under the wing of Jesus because of the fear of man. We, we can squander the opportunity to come to Jesus for fear of being hated. Because we know people that hate Jesus and we're fearful they'll hate us because of our stand with Jesus. It might cost something to follow Jesus. <laughs> and we may not want any part of that. We may squander the opportunity. You may squander the opportunity to come to Jesus. In fact, for some of you listening and watching, I know you're squandering the opportunity. Yeah, I've heard you're squandering the opportunity to come to Jesus and you think that your heart will always be ready. The, the picture we have from Scripture is you may enter a day when you have no opportunity. Proverbs verse one, chapter 1, verses 20 through 33 are worthy of all of our reflection. Verse 28 in particular, then they will call upon me and I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but I, but will not find me. They will call upon me, but I will not answer. 
They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Wisdom being personified in Proverbs chapter 1. Jesus in Luke chapter 13, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Is that scary? Does that shock you? When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Squandered opportunity, hardened hearts. Many, I tell you, Jesus says, will seek to enter, but will not be able because of the, the pressures of the world, the, the being indifferent or being double-minded, putting our hopes in some other God on this planet, some other deity that's deity in our heart or in our mind, we will have squandered the opportunity. And that'll be a frightful, frightful day. Well, we see the gospel here in a beautiful, what I'm calling a nutshell. When we think of John, we think of the, the gospel, we think of chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, but wow, this verse, this section, verse 37 through 39 really stands out. It's such a cherished gem. It's so beautiful. On the last day of the feast, the great day, the great day of worship, the final day, Jesus stood up. Stood up and, and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever thirsts, come to me. This thirsting, it's very interesting always, the pictures that Jesus gives, and it's always interesting what the, the, how the apostles lay out those pictures, just how, how the Holy Spirit and how God had laid it out and wanted to communicate it. But thirsting, what does thirsting communicate to you? Thirsting communicates a craving. Have you ever thirsted? Really thirst? Really thirsty? Ever been out somewhere and you've been away from water and it hadn't been available to you or something to drink? You're really thirsty? There's this craving. If anyone craves, and, and, and the other thing about this thirsting is, is it's very, very personal. I can't thirst for you. You can't thirst for me. That's a very personal thing. And thirsting is very intense. Jesus is taking a very uh, uh, common picture. In the festival, there was a piece of the festival had to do with water and pouring out water and the thanks, remembering the faithfulness of God to the, to the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness and He provided water to them. If anyone thirsts, 
If anyone craves, and this is the spiritual meaning to it, of course, it's not simply the, the, the physical. If, if, anyone, if anyone craves something spiritually, if anyone has this thirst, this deep thirst, this, this, this cra craving, if you want to get it satisfied, how will you get that satisfied? Do you have a craving, actually? Do you have a craving? Whoever thirsts, if anyone thirsts, it's very intense, it's very personal. Anyone who is like that, well, let him come and let him, let him drink. Whoever has a, a deep, unsettling inside, unsettled internally, thirsting, thirsting. Is that you? Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize how spiritually helpless they are. Blessed are those who have nowhere else to go. They are so thirsty. They realize that they are helpless. There's nothing they can do in, within themselves. There, there's nothing about them that will satisfy their thirst. The thirst must be satisfied somewhere else. The poor in spirit, not the prideful in spirit, the poor in spirit, thirsty, hungry, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he says in Matthew chapter 3, chapter 5, verse 3. This intense, this intense acknowledgement of spiritual poverty. So, I'll ask you, do you have a recollection of spiritual poverty? Do you have a recollection of thirsting? Because if you haven't, you might want to revisit your walk of faith. Whoever thirsts, you ever thirst for Jesus? That's just what my family did. We did it that way. Well, we've always been like that. That's not thirsting. gospel you're hearing today because without that there is no salvation that's why it's such a beautiful verse craving needing something something is not right in my life thirsty desperate have you been desperate for God to do something in your life? I mean desperate. I mean thirsty. Mojave Desert. Thirsty. For Him to do something in your life. To come and to save you. And have you ever come to the realization 
that you don't have anything within you to contribute to God. Do you, have you ever come to the admission, the acknowledgement, that your eternal destiny is hell? Do you believe that? Because a lot of people sitting in churches, honestly, if they get real deep and if they really get sincere and honest before God, not the church, not honest before the preacher themselves, they don't believe that. That if, if it wasn't, you know, I, I should believe in Jesus. I should be a Christian. Well, I've always been a Christian. They've never come to the conviction that they personally, consciously, are going to hell without, they are under eternal wrath from God. That's thirsty. And if you haven't come there, you may be embracing folk religion. You may have fit in really well in Jerusalem. Why the emphasis? It's true, number one. Number two, it's a pervading theme in our nation. Willful misunderstanding. Willful rejection. People read it, they hear it, don't want anything with that. I don't want to do that. Anyone who thirsts, it's very intense. Everyone, everyone before God is a beggar. You think of yourself that way? In another age, the, the Puritans would talk that way. Spurgeon would talk that way. A beggar destined to eternal torment unless God does some, God do something, change my life. And that's why he allows some things into our life that are difficult so that we would come to that. So Jesus says, anyone who thirsts, anyone who craves, let him come, let him come to me. In that whole verse there, we don't want to overlook the little word if. If. If anyone craves. It's not a given that everyone will crave. You know, it's, it's rather naive of us, of Christians, to think that the, that the world is warm to the message of Jesus. <laughs> that they're just waiting for it to be articulated accurately. If they could just come into contact with some kind Christians, then they would believe. <laughs> the world... 
there's one message that we can take away from the Apostle John is the world is in hostility to Jesus, the true Jesus, not the folk religion Jesus. Jesus is easy to get along with in the folk religion, but the true Jesus, the true apostolic message, they're hostile to that because change is going to come, come take place. And they've been told all of their life by the humanists, been told all of their life that they're a pretty good person. No, I don't agree that I'll be eternally under the wrath of God. No, but I prefer my Christian religion. But, you know, for that work, here's the thing today. It, that works for me. Well, if that works for you, that's fine. But it, not, it doesn't work for me. No, that, that doesn't work. Truth doesn't work that way. There's one truth. Look, this is a spiritually sensitive time of year. You're going to have to, in your beautiful way, your own personal way, articulate that to someone in your life. Because until they thirst, they don't need a Savior. They don't need what you're offering. Can you blame them? They're not thirsty. They're not under conviction. Jesus says to come. Come. Let him come to me. With, abandon any confidence he has in himself. Let him abandon any confidence he has in himself other than Christ alone. Christ being the only remedy. Abandon any thoughts of anything else. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become the righteousness of God. This great, great exchange. Let Him come. Jesus says, let them come. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now the Gospel is beautiful. The realization of our helplessness is very uncomfortable. And the consequences of rejecting Jesus is a very uncomfortable state. The law came, the Apostle Paul says, to show our sinfulness so that we would realize how far we have fallen. I'm just afraid you, you in this world, you, you, you may have experienced, well, yeah, we all fall short. But we're all sinners. I, I sure not perfect by any means. I, I would submit to you that that message is true, but it needs to be ratcheted up a little further. It's not that just everybody falls short. It's not that just everyone sins is that I am under the eternal judgment of God 
unless something changes. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and drink. So everyone, he's calling. That call goes out. Come. You come. You come. Everyone in whom God is working will come. <laughs> They'll want that thirst satisfied. Well, he says to drink. Jesus is so practical on all of his, his teachings, his, the pictures that he gives. The people were, were celebrating this time of God providing in the wilderness and their ancestors and God providing for their crops during the year. And then Jesus says, come and drink. There's a, there's a sense of being receptive in this whole picture. Jesus comes on the scene being receptive, being open, and to drink. Now, what would you do if you were in the Mojave or your preferred desert and you were thirsty and someone said, come to this well which will satisfy you and drink. What's that? And you've been out there a long time. In fact, you've been out there your whole life. And you needed a drink. You would guzzle the water. He says, come to me and drink. You would come to that well and you would seize that water. That would be yours. No one in the whole entire desert, if there was anyone else, no one could get that cup of water away from you. You would guzzle, you'd seize it, you'd drink it, it'd flow down into you, you'd re be refreshed and you'd drink more and you'd drink more until you couldn't even hardly walk. You'd be filled, you'd be filled, you'd be filled, you'd drink, and you would drink, and you would drink, and you would drink. The, the Apostle Paul would put it this way, be filled with the Spirit. Drinking, drinking, drink, being filled, 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 because this is the water that satisfies. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of, of God. Those who did receive Him, they're the ones they drank, drank from that water. They, they, they were filled. And just think about drinking and, and being thirsty. It's, it's, it's your thirst and your practical living experience. It doesn't just happen one time. It didn't just happen one time when you were 13 and you were thirsty and you drank and that was good for you. It, it didn't just happen one time when you were 30 and you drank and, and, and it was good for you. There was more. It was, it was, this thirsting is something that, that is, a, is a presence that's in your life now. There is the first time that you come, you're satisfied, you're filled. And, and you, you do come to that well that satisfies this deep, deep, deep thirsting. And you seize it and you drink it. There's a couple 
big themes in Scripture that, well, there's a lot of big themes, as you know, but a couple today that will help us. The overarching, the big picture In the beginning, God. The story here is about God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. All of life has a spiritual foundation. The root is spiritual. The story of Scripture is, is how that relationship with God was broken and redemption, the story of redemption unfolding. Everything is spiritual. That's the foundation. You with me? Because today, people are going to tell you everything is political. That's what matters. Everything is economy. Crypto, one world currency, whatever, pick your choice. Everything is economic. The foundation is spiritual. When the spiritual is not there, when the spiritual is not aligned with the Creator God of the Bible, what do you expect everything else in the world to be like? Out of whack, disordered, disrupted. That starts in people's hearts. Disordered hearts, upset hearts, turned around hearts, not, not living in the way Human beings were created to live and then that radiates out into the political and the economic and the education and the media and all the other things that we are faced with. But at the root is the spiritual. Do you believe that? Amen. Do you believe that? Amen. Actually, do you believe that? I mean, it's very fundamental. That is what the Bible teaches. Who are you going to tell about that this holiday season? It's very fundamental. And the world's upside down. It's moving sideways. You going to say something about some basic truths? I was shocked this week. I was shocked. Actually shocked. Twice, Lydia and I found ourselves at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru. Twice, actually back-to-back -back days. You know, this is the time of year they, they have those peppermint milkshakes. That's a thing. Those little Merry Christmas package. We drove through there. Get one, get one, get one. Get over there. Where is it? It's in the glove box. They're not there. Where are they? Oh, they're over here. Okay, got one. Here, this is for you. 
No one threw a Pepsi on me. I can still see the picture of the guy. He goes, that's really nice. Thank you very much. The lady on the second time through, she was uncertain about it. I looked at her and what's this? What kind of currency are you trying to pass here? She, she took it. I don't know what they'll do with it, but people will take it. That's just a little example of, I'll never, I may not ever see that, well, I probably will see them tomorrow sometime, but, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if those milkshakes are. They're not going to shoot you down. They're, they're, they're not going to destroy your life because you gave them a pack. Now, how are we, that's not the end all, of course, but how are, how are, we, going to, how are we going to communicate in some way with people that the, that the spiritual is the foundation and these other things are very, very important, but this has got to be in place. Anyway, Jesus says to, to drink, to drink. And here's the beautiful thing. That out of his heart, out of her heart, will flow rivers of living water. When you think of a river, it, it seems like never-ending, right? When Lydia and I, when, when we're in Colorado and we see those rivers, those mountain streams, it's, it's as if there could never be an end to the water. It just keeps flowing. It keeps coming. There's no end to it. It flows. It flows. And, and that water, as we've already considered, provides life. But there's more there, rivers. There's more there than I could possibly consume. There, there's more. I'm thinking of a river right now, a mountain stream. And it's, there's more water in that mountain stream than all of us could possibly consume all week long of doing nothing but drinking water. And it's not even that big. But it just comes. It flows. It flows. It goes. It goes. Jesus says, come to Him in, in this heart. Come and, and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of His heart. This is the place we crave. We crave things in our heart. Out of our heart will flow rivers not of hatred, not of belittling other people, not of trying to tear them up in social media. Not those rivers. This river overcomes all of that. Will flow rivers of living water. This water, we've already considered, is refreshing. It's refreshment. The picture here, spiritual truths captured in physical pictures. It's satisfying. It will continue to satisfy. Keep drinking. Keep drinking. How are you drinking from Jesus? Keep drinking. Drinking from Jesus. Drink His Word. Drink His prayer. Drink His godly conversations. Drink His hymns of praise. Drink, drink things. Drink, drink. Satisfied. The point is satisfied. Satisfaction is not a new word around here. Being satisfied with Jesus... The, the hunger, the emptiness, the voids that you're trying to fill with all of these other things going on in your life, very busy. All of these things. 
pursuing the dreams of the world that the world has for you. All of that busyness, there's a hunger, there's a thirsting that will be satisfied by this, by this drinking. Now here's, here's the thing. It's a river. The river's got to go somewhere. Where does it go? It flows through you out to other people. That's why we need more people not believing in a folk religion. We need people believing in the true Jesus and the true gospel. So that the Spirit, these things he spoke of about the Spirit, we'll get to that later, about the Spirit, the Spirit flowing through, being very satisfied. Do you think you would be satisfied with the Holy Spirit flowing through you? Why not? Satisfied in a way that nothing else can provide for you. No other person or thing or dream or action could provide. And that flows through you and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, touches other people's lives. It's not you touching other people's lives. It's the Spirit of God touching other people's lives. God is the world changer. Changing the world through you. So that's why I say this passage is so beautiful. The Gospel, in a nutshell. Anyone who thirsts. Anybody recognizing the thirst? Well, then come. There's a place to go. Come. And then you got to do something about that. You can't, you can't just not do anything with Jesus. you got to drink. you got to drink Jesus. And here's the, that's the promise, the beautiful thing. God flowing through you. Filling you up. Satisfying you. But then also reaching and touching the, the world and giving satisfaction. Give, giving, giving comfort and giving joy and and giving conviction and all of these things that we think about, giving it to the world is flowing through you. In chapter 6, verse 35, as we finish here this morning, we see something we've already touched on, John 6, 35. In the previous chapter, We back up to verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So he's using bread here. In chapter 7, using the picture of water. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes, comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Thirst, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Psalm 107. Just listen to these, these words. Psalm 107. Verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul 
And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The promise is that Jesus will satisfy. God will satisfy. The Spirit comes will satisfy. In your presence there is fullness of joy. That's what our friends and our family need more of. Joy. It's what we need. More joy. Our world needs more joy found in the right places, in the place that lasts forever.